0: Oh, my goodness. He looks good, though. He looks good. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your copy of the Word of God and open it up to the book of Psalms. We're going to go to Psalm 119. And I'm not going to cover the whole psalm, if you're worrying. I want you to turn to Psalm 119, verses 81 to 88. Psalm 119, 81 to 88. Eight. I'd like to read the word of God and then go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon this evening as we meditate on what his word says to us as we open up this week of time in the word, thinking on this theme of Christ, our hope in life and death. Psalm 119, verses 81 through 88, this begins the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. I say long for your word. While I say, when will you come? Though I have become like a wine smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servants? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. they have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for your scripture. It, It makes clear for us that when we place our hope in you, that our hope is properly placed upon the rock And that there is nothing that can move us as long as we stand upon you. Lord, you have ordained our days. You know you have brought us to this point. You have raised us up. You have given birth to this people. And you have brought us to this time in history for your good purposes. We know that this world we are living in is falling deeper into darkness and madness but we will not fear for you are with us help us to persevere and hope in you thank you for your word that it does not lessen the reality of what we see around us but instead it anchors us to Jesus Christ our savior we ask your blessing upon your word That you might fill us and encourage us and strengthen us, embolden us, so that we might go back into the world and minister and serve to the last breath that you give us, no matter what may come. It is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. It was in 1829 that Alexander Campbell engaged in a debate with a notorious uh, infidel whose name was Robert Owen. They debated Christianity, and Owen visited Campbell on his farm to make some arrangements. As they walked around Campbell's farm, uh, they came to his family burial ground. They looked over all of the stones there in the ground. Owen stopped, and he said to Campbell, there is one advantage that I have over Christians. I am not afraid to die. Most Christians are afraid in death. But if I were to arrange some of the things, I would be settled. I should be perfectly willing to die at any moment. Well, Campbell answered, you say you have no fear of death. Have you any hope in death? Campbell then pointed to an ox standing nearby, and he replied, If you do not, then you are on the level with that brutes. He has fed until he is satisfied, and he stands in the shade, whisking off the flies, and he has neither hope nor fear in death. We, brothers and sisters, have hope in life. And death. The Heidelberg Catechism, written by German Protestant reformer Zacharias Ursinus, originally published in 1563, reaffirms this truth. Question number one What is your only hope in life and death? Listen to this biblically piercing answer that Ursinus came up with, and it is fully, thoroughly scriptural. What is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. In the previous two sections of Psalm 119, beginning in verse 65, the psalmist has been dealing with the realities that we face in this world, in this life. The realities of evil and pain and the trials of life that afflict God's people. And One thing that makes the Bible shine above all other texts is the fact that the Bible doesn't shy away from hard questions. The realities of life in a fallen world It is able to face them head-on without apology. And although there is no denying that difficulties exist in life for all people, God is still on his throne. And we need to approach these trials as children of God and not like the world. We aren't to be like the atheist and the bull with no fear of death and no hope. In death. Tonight, as we consider these verses in verses 81 to 88, we're going to open up this theme of dealing with trials in a biblical way so we can be assured as Christians that Christ is, in fact, our hope in life and death. The theme really does grow powerfully from the ninth to the current stanza. This is the Kaf stanza, the Hebrew letter Kaf. The 11th stanza of this 22-part psalm. And tonight we're really going to see how great the psalmist's persecution was. We'll see that there are special challenges that faced him as he sought to walk with God through them. The reality is, is that life is filled with problems for everyone. Some have a harder lot than others, but there is nobody that escapes difficulties in this world. Eliphaz, one of Job's counselors, said in Job 5-7, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Man is born for trouble. We can't ever seem to escape it, not on this side. Trouble seems to find us, but there is hope. So tonight we're going to look at this section, beginning in verse 81. And we're going to learn that when our faith is severely tested, We have to cling to God in a persevering hope that he will deliver us. He will deliver us from our enemies. First of all, I want you to notice the severity of the trial. As the psalmist writes here in verses 81 to 83, he describes the severity of the trial. There is a desperate need. Notice verse 81. My soul languishes for your salvation. Verse 82, my eyes fail with longing for your word. Verse 83, though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Languishes. The King James uses the word fainted. It speaks of being complete, being finished at the end, to to vanish, to fade away. This is a man that feels his life slipping away from him. This isn't the idea of a a lonely lover pining away for his beloved after leaving her off at the door. This is a desperate man. He's about to black out in the desert from a lack of food and water after many days of hunger and thirst. This isn't a light affliction. This is a heavy burden. And it is the soul that is languishing, he says. It languishes for deliverance. It languishes for salvation. In other words, if the Lord doesn't intercede for his soul, then he's doomed. He has no other hope but for God to bring salvation. He won't recover without the Lord's intercession. At the first part of verse 82, we see the same root word from verse 81. It speaks of languishing, but here it speaks of of failing. It's the eyes that are failing. It's as if the eyes are longing and looking and stretching and waiting, and they're focused on watching for the fulfillment of the word spoken. This use of this Hebrew word points to a promise He's waiting and longing for God to fulfill what he has told him. They're straining for salvation, but he's been straining so hard and so long, his sight begins to fail. His eyes can't hold out the same hope that his heart hopes for in God. The New American Standard translates Imrah as word, but in verse 82, it's not the same word as It says in verse 81, Imrah is a word spoken of a promise. What's the promise that he's referring to here? It's all of God's words that offer hope to his people. Our God has spoken. And our God has promised. And our God has never failed. And although we long and wait and our eyes fail as we hope, and wait for him to fulfill those promises, we will not give up hope. Verse 83, though I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Here it speaks a bit of the psalmist's impatience. It shows his desperation while not giving up on the faith he has in the Lord to save him. This word picture is vivid. It's a dried out animal skin that's been used to to hold wine or water. It's dried on the outside because of the warm smoke of a fire. It's dried out on the inside from the wine's tannin acids. Inside and outside, it's shriveled up. It's brittle. It's about ready to crumble, perhaps leaking out some of the contents it holds inside. It's a similar picture of what is described in the beginning of verse 81. The psalmist is languishing the end, and he's close to complete brokenness. All three of these verses demonstrate the desperate need that the psalmist has. He's at the end of his rope, and he's quickly losing his grip. But how is his faith? Has he given up on God? Absolutely not. Though everyone else will fail him, he knows that our God will not. The severity of the trial shows us his desperate need. The word of God doesn't play. It it understands what we go through. It understands our weakness and our infirmity. It understands where you're at. It understands where the church is at. It understands where our people are at. And we can offer them hope because the worst of the worst shows up in scriptures And our God is always sufficient. Notice the dependable hope. It's the second half of those first three verses 81, 82, and 83. Notice first in verse 81. He hopes in the word. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. He hopes in the word. You see that in the note for the New American Standard. The word of the Lord is where he places his hope. Now, this is not primarily the Bible, although our minds often go there, but it's the spoken word of God, the commands, everything that he does that accomplishes. His hope is in the word. His hope is in the Lord. His hope is in his activity. When God speaks, it will happen. The New American Standard translates hope with wait. That's the type of hope that he has. It's not that useless, foolish hopefulness that will never likely come about. That it's a hope that's determined to wait for what is sure and certain will happen. That, brothers and sisters, is biblical hope. And then in verse 82b, it says, while I say, when will you comfort me? We get the first of three hypothetical questions that he asks in this section. Now, he isn't expecting the Lord to answer these questions, but they reflect the stress that he's under. When? When will you comfort me? Is this the doubt that we see? The psalmist trusts the Lord, but the waiting for deliverance is difficult because the trials are wearying to his soul. They wear him down. They make him sorrowful. They make him weighty. He longs for the consolation that can only come from the Lord. We live in a world that feels this same weight without Christ. And they try everything that they can to remove that burden from their hearts. But none of it satisfies. None of it gives them hope. None of, them relie- none of it relieves them of the burden. I mentioned the picture of the man in the desert who's thirsting and starving to death. And for that kind of a situation, impatience is somewhat understandable. The thirst and the hunger are so great that they have brought that person to the breaking point. When will relief come? But when will the relief come is a far cry from will relief come? He's straining to see the hand of the Lord's salvation. But he sees nothing yet. But he does not lose heart. And in verse 83. Even though he feels like a dried out wineskin skin. That is ready to crumble into dust. This desperation. Does not negate his faith and obedience. He says at the end of 83. I do not forget your statutes. He doesn't doubt God. He doesn't doubt his promises, including the coming punishment of the wicked. But his difficult circumstances have dried his soul. And so he does all that he can do. Wait in faith and pray. Have you ever noticed that the worst situations in life put you into that kind of a box, that kind of a corner, laying on that kind of a hospital bed, and all you can do is look up. You can do nothing but wait and pray. Through the Bible, we find people that have faced hard trials. And we, of course, think of Job and the loss of everything in his life, his his family, his servants, his wealth, his friends, even his own health and comforts. He became so overwhelmed with his situation that he cursed the day that he was born. But even with those desperate needs, there was still a dependable hope for Job. You'll remember in 1925, he confidently declared these words, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last... He will take his stand on the earth. When you look at your own trials, take some time to look at the trials of those in the Bible. Look at Moses. Look at Joseph. Look at Job and David, at Daniel and his friends. Think about what they went through. Look at Elijah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk. Then think of Paul's struggles. Think of the persecution of the Christians that are described in Hebrews chapter 11. That won't change your trial, but it will show you that you're not alone. It'll remind you that if God was powerful enough to carry them through the trial, he will carry you as well. He hasn't left anyone behind, and you won't be the first. The trial may be severe. Whether it comes from our society. Whether it comes through persecution. Whether it comes through ministry. Whether it comes through failing health. Through some internal struggle. It doesn't matter. God is with us. We place our hope in him alone. And we will offer nothing to the world if it is not placed there first. Our hope is in Christ alone. Verses 84 to 87 is going to show us now that these trials begin to have an effect and that we need to continuously hope in God. Notice the strain on the servant. In verses 84 to 87, beginning in verse 84, the strain begins with impatience. We've seen it a little bit, but it increases. In verse 84, it says, How many are the days of your servants? When will you execute judgments on those who persecute me? The New American Standard Bible gives the literal wording. The ESV gives it in a footnote. The wording is, how many are the days of your servants? This may be speaking about the desire of the Psalmist to die just to end his misery. He just wants the pain to stop. And if that's correct, the psalmist is asking, How much longer does he need to live with this pain? Another possible interpretation is that the psalmist is asking, How long he has to wait until the Lord brings deliverance. That's the interpretation suggested by the translation of the English Standard Version and makes the most sense with the rest of verse. Eighty-four. Either way, the psalmist is impatient for the trial to end, so he seeks an escape. But not like many try to escape. He seeks escape through salvation, and that might include death. And this impatience, again, is, is understandable when we consider the great suffering of the psalmist. He is echoed by the tribulation saints in Revelation 6.10 who cry out for the righteous judgment of the Lord to be displayed on their persecutors as well. How long, O Lord? How long? And that holy impatience is in every one of God's people who long to see Jesus come for us. How long? Come quickly lord jesus in verses 85 to 87 they go on to list the crimes of the wicked against the righteous it's as if he's calling the lord's attention do you see this lord do you see what is going on here and i want you to look at them with me so we can understand why he's so impatient for this trial to end yes he's impatient but notice frustration in verse 85 The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. He's frustrated. The arrogant ones have once again turned up. As you read through the psalm, as you go through Psalm 119, you'll hear of the arrogance. They're prideful people constantly attacking the psalmist. This is the third time the arrogant ones have shown up in three consecutive sections where the arrogance are mentioned in verses 69, verse 78, verse 85. They're also called the insolent and the proud in other translations. He says these arrogant ones have dug pits for the psalmist. It's referring to a pit trap. A hole, a deep hole that is dug specifically to trap animals. They're deep, they're hidden, covered with twigs and with leaves and then with dirt so that they are invisible. They are meant to entrap for death. And these persecutors are actively hunting for the psalmist. This once again shows the urgency in the psalmist's words. You see that we know this the wicked are not passive. They're aggressively active. They are cunning, they are planners, they are schemers. No wonder he's frustrated with waiting for deliverance. He fears his time might run out and that he will be trapped by the wicked. So we hear frustration in verse 85. Notice desperation as well in verses 86 and 87. It says All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Here, the commandments of the Lord are are called faithful or sure in the ESV. It can also refer to something that is, is firm. It is reliable. It is steadfast. It won't move. And that contrasts with the idea of a pit that has been covered over with twigs and leaves and dirt and hidden, but is not going to bear the weight of the psalmist when he walks across it. In contrast, the Lord is faithful. He is sure. He is reliable. He is steadfast. And in the second half of verse 86, Sheker refers to a lie, deception, deceit. Because the pit trap looks firm. It looks like it is solid ground, but it's only an illusion. It lures the unwary into stepping on it. And then the floor gives way to a pit that entraps the victim. This picture of persecution references laying a verbal trap for the psalmist. A verbal trap that he doesn't see, not a literal one, but one in which he knows is there. And so he must walk very carefully so he's not entrapped by the deceptive words of the wicked. Probably also good to note here that these deceptive words of the wicked, which entrap, are again in stark contrast to the hope filling words of God that we see in verse 81. Those words, instead of taking life, restore life to the psalmist. And so the desperation grows as the wicked attack the hope of the righteous. And then in verse 87, we see a a mirror of verse 83. Without the wineskin imagery. He says there in verse 87, They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. He's still fading in weakness, but he clings to the hope of God and seeks to remain faithful to the very end. Impatience, frustration, desperation, all of these things work together to make the child of God weary they, they work together to tempt him, to tempt her, to give up. But our hope is not a humanly derived hope. It is not something that we produce in ourselves. We read what happened to the saints in Hebrews 11. We read what happened to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We read what happened to Elijah and Elisha. We read what happened to Jeremiah. And we wonder how did they make it? We read what happened to Christians in church history and say, how did they ever get through that? It was not in them. It was in their God. That even the nameless saints can lean heavily upon the faithful, solid foundation of Christ. Our hope is not humanly derived hope. The gospel itself points us to the reality of our salvation through Jesus Christ. He is our perfect sacrifice. Our Savior not only demonstrated God's love for us by his death upon the cross, But his resurrection assures us that we too shall be raised again from the dead. That's why we have no fear in life and death. That's why Christ is our hope in life and death. And since Christ our Savior said he will come for us, we hope with anticipation that no matter how difficult, no matter how crushing this life is, that as Paul said, it is a light momentary affliction that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We may have this treasure in mere earthen vessels, but we will not be crushed. So what is the stimulus for living? That's verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. This is the stimulus for living. In the last verse of this section, the motivation for our hope when things seem to be growing darker, it makes sense to lose all hope. The candle is getting dimmer. The lights are flickering. Why is it that the psalmist wants relief? Of course he wants the trial to end. He wants the pain that's associated with it to stop. But that, I mean, that's only human. There's actually a superior motive that he has above and beyond This basic reason. Notice that he prays to be revived so that he may continue to keep the testimonies of the Lord. It's here we see the purpose clause of not only the verse, but of the whole section. Revival is needed so that the psalmist can continue... In a life that is seeking the pleasure of the Lord as it is lived for his glory. Because that is what life is all about. We don't ask for God to change our country so that we might continue to have a cushy, prosperous, wonderful life until the next generation has to deal with it. We say, Lord, allow your church to continue on and allow your people to continue on and allow the gospel to continue on so that you might receive all glory. Allow us to continue to live and to worship and to praise you publicly and openly so that you might receive glory, not so that we might receive comfort, not so that we might get out of trials, not so that we might get out of the pain and the suffering, but do it so that we might live openly and gloriously for you. And this reviving unto life is prayed for. But it's not demanded. Since it comes by virtue of this chesed, this covenant's love. The loving kindness of the Lord. Notice it does not vary. It is steadfast love. And this gives the hope the psalmist depends on so greatly. Our God does not change. He will sustain us for his great name's sake. This is the true stimulus for living. The chief end, the main purpose for man is what? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Those theologians that wrote this were purposeful in their order here. Our chief purpose is, first of all, to glorify God. And that includes through all of life and all of trials and whatever God may bring upon us. But the joy is not outside of the trials either. We find our joy in God, not in our circumstances. So that we think upon the face of our Lord in the midst of the trial. And that just as Jesus endured the cross, it was for the joy that was set before him. Listen to how one Christian writer put it Christianity teaches that, contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contrary to secularism, Suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. We have hope in trials. Even when those trials end in death. We have hope. Because we have Jesus Christ. We don't deny that there's pain in this life. Even excruciating, traumatic pain. We don't have to be stoic. We don't have to fake bravery. We don't have to fake courage. All we need is hope and Christ. The anchor for our soul. In him... We find that no matter how difficult our trials may be, he will never leave us alone. He will travel with us, often carrying us to the very end when we shall be with him forever. Christ is our hope in life and death. This is our theme this week. It's our theme in song in prayer, in our general sessions. And our desire is that if it isn't already, it will become the theme of your life and your ministry. Because the next election will not save us. If gas prices go back down to 25 cents a gallon, that will not fix things. We rejoice in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But people still need Christ. Because that is their only hope. And may we never lose sight of that fact. Is that no matter the perversions and the twisting and the flipping upside down. Where lies have become truth in this world, that the only way to confront that is through Christ. He is the world's only hope in this world, in life, and in the next, in death. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word deals In clarity and brutal honesty with the hard times that we all face, and we as a church may face even more in the near future. We thank you, Lord God, that we are not alone. We thank you that the issues of this life are not the end of the story, that our Savior Jesus Christ has already won the victory on Calvary, and that one day soon, maybe tonight, He will return for his church and that we will meet him in the clouds and be with him forevermore. One day he will come and he will judge the living and the dead. And one day he will rule on this earth after he's refurbished it completely. Remind us of this in the darkness, as the days grow more weary, as things become more chaotic. You've told us these things beforehand so that we might not worry that we might place our hope in Christ. Thank you. Thank you for all that we have in Jesus. May we cling to him. May he be the anchor for our soul. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. It's not in us, it's in Christ. Jesus,
1: is Jesus, my deep. There is no more for Him to give. is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless. To this I hold. about to. the same
0: Can we give these guys a hand? They did a wonderful job. Well, during this week, we're going to have some opportunities to highlight some special uh, organizations with us. Um, You know, it takes a lot, uh, not only in work and planning, but it takes a lot of funds to be able to have a really good convention. And so we have had some really good sponsors this year that have blessed us with some of the things that we're offering to you this week. And so we wanna highlight them um, at different times during the convention. So uh, Paul Holritz is gonna